got to the merge agreement, went exactly, or went right to the CEO clause, and it didn't say who the continued CEO was. So I asked the two current ones. I said, who is the continuing CEO? Who's the president? Who's the EVP? How's this going to work? They both raised a hand in terms of who was going to be the continuing CEO. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. How do you think that went? So that is... Not well. Yeah, that is not well. Welcome, everyone, to the third episode of In Your Best Interest, an ALM First podcast, a show that will explore common depository challenges, give you an insider's view of the latest market trends, and share stories and insights from industry leaders. I'm your host, Mike Ensweiler, and this week's episode will focus on mergers, primarily in the credit union space, with David Ritter. David is a managing director at ALM First who works with clients by focusing on both their quantitative and qualitative strategic growth initiatives, whether via facilitating an entire merger and acquisition process, conducting strategic planning, building customized, sophisticated, yet practical financial scenario analyses models for clients, or creating de novo business plans. We're talking about mergers because that has been the hot trend the last couple of years, Credit unions merging, banks merging, credit unions buying banks. It's a continuous hot topic. The industry continues to shrink, and it's something that we get asked about all the time. And with that, let's dive into mergers with David. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started, you know, I know you're a Northern California guy. You're living in Michigan. How does a Northern California guy get to Michigan? That's the big question always. Uh, I, I grew up in Northern California, and then I actually uh, I moved to Southern California to go to undergrad. He went to UC Santa Barbara, and then after UC Santa Barbara, moved down to Southern California, got married in uh, Laguna Beach, lived in uh, uh, Newport Beach, and uh, worked at American Savings Bank. We uh, were acquired by Washington Mutual way back in the day, and I headed up uh, the post-merger integration group and really was very interested in, in, in the merger and acquisition space, and so I decided I wanted to go to uh, business school. Got accepted to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, got my MBA from Carnegie Mellon. When I graduated, uh, the dot-bomb happened, and uh, I was at that point just looking for a career. I was going to move back to California or New York. Of all places that were hiring at the time was Michigan. And uh, ended up working with a, a great uh, firm. Headed up my strategic advisory group and M&A group uh, in Michigan. Had kids and have built my roots here and been here ever since. That's awesome. You know, it's I had on the last podcast, I had Robert Perry on. And, and like yourself, very quantitative, very bright. Um, math is something that seems to come very easily for you. And like Robert and a lot of people who are, are very good at math, you're also into music and rock bands. And tell us a little bit about that as well. <laughs> yeah, as, as Spinal Tap says, I like to turn it up to 11, you know, after a hard day. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, I'm part of a rock band. I am a, the lead guitarist, actually the only guitarist in our band. Uh, just play for charities. It's with a bunch of friends. Uh, we play covers, Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, Guns N' Roses, those type of things. Uh, 
my, other than my my family, my my other loves are are my Gibson Les Paul Standard and my Marshall Silver Jubilee. So something I love to do. It just uh, that's my de-stressor. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, tell us a little bit about the path that led you to Alem first. So as you mentioned, you know, how do I get to Michigan? Well, long story short, I, I worked with a, another firm, uh, built my career, uh, strategic planning, really focusing in on uh, both the for-profit and not-for-profit organizations, uh, mostly focused on financial institutions and really started to love the credit union mantra uh, mentality, as well as the, the bank side. But back in 2009, when in the merger standpoint, credit unions that merged had to do a fair valuation. Well, I got to know Alan first very intimately uh, with especially Kevin Kirksey. We were just trying to figure out, okay, how do you value a not-for-profit entity? This was new. Uh, so I got to know Kevin Kirksey, who is uh, one of our lead executives at Alan first. And then next thing I, I, I met with Emily Hollis and just had a really good rapport with Alan first. And when, when we could not do a fair valuation on an organization, I was always the first person I, first organization I called was ALM First. We just had a really good rapport. I can say this because I've been with ALM First for less than a year. I've always considered ALM First as the Goldman Sachs with credit union space. And, and I, I got to know them more and more, and it just seemed to be a really good fit to, instead of just our valuation side, is let's offer an entire start to finish M&A advisory stamp um, uh, service. And one person that I, I started working with more and more was Brandon Pelletier that works at ALM First and now is part of our team in the M&A space. And it's been kind of the best of both, all worlds. I'm extremely delighted that I've been able to move over there and, and help the organization grow and add one more service to, the, uh, to ALM First. Yeah, and I know we're very excited to have you. That really rounds out um, that service offering for us, especially you've been in this space for 14, 15 years. Um, and so, as you mentioned, ALM First has been in the valuation side of that since 2009, um, along with your help there. But to really offer our clients, you know, kind of that soup to nuts turnkey M&A or merger uh, service is something that is, is really excited for the firm. You know, I was just seeing recently that you know, the bank deals or transactions have really dropped significantly this past quarter. And so, you know, the obvious question I have for you, is that COVID related or what's 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 driving that? And is that impacting credit unions as well? Yes, predominantly it's COVID related. And we were actually helping a couple of organizations, actually credit unions looking to acquire a bank. And everyone got skittish because, well, first and foremost, they had to look at their own operations and make sure that they could serve their, their customers, their members. Uh, without looking at strategic uh, opportunities. So the, the, the bank space has really dropped significantly. However, what I'm finding is it's not being just truly opportunistic, but it's being um, open the eyes. It's the tipping point for credit unions that might have been on the sidelines for a while, is that, you know what, there's probably some opportunities out there and it probably makes sense from scale. We hear scale, scale, scale all the time. So I'm getting calls um, from credit unions that would like to at least put their head in the ring. How do I do this? How do I start to this process? How do I entertain talking to other organizations that whether they have to do something or let's come together and, and, and work 
collaboratively to serve our members, to retain our talent, our employees, and, and to just be good stewards in our communities that we serve. So the credit union space, I find that there's a lot more, it's been a tipping point. There's a lot more discussion happening. The banking space, I think we're going to see this be slow for quite some time. What about on the, the credit union buying bank side? That seems to be a kind of a big headline in the industry publications, both on the banking side and the credit union side for the, the past couple of years. Yeah, I think, uh, well, what's happened is most of the banks have gotten skittish. They don't want it. They, the multiples have dropped so much that the shareholders don't want to sell at a discount compared to what we saw pre-COVID. When you're seeing uh, price to tangible book value at some pretty good strong, strong numbers. Now we're seeing it's just dried up. It's because there's some un they're just unknown. We don't know what's going to happen to the portfolio. Is there going to do we want to acquire something that we just don't know about even through due diligence when we don't even know our own organization? So remember, when we're looking to buy a bank, we're actually cutting a check. In credit unions, there's a merger. There's no cutting a check between two organizations. We're bringing the capital together. So that's why there's skittishness on the acquiring a bank holistically versus two credit unions coming together from a merger. However, I do see that's going to probably be more opportunities for credit unions to look at bank branch opportunities. That hey, COVID has sort of been, again, I'll use that, that tipping point or, or ripping the bandaid off quickly where do we need all the physical branches that we've been having um, to serve our members, serve our customers. Um, some people are, are, are assessing that, but there might be an opportunity for credit unions to buy bank branches that fit in their core needs at a discount. So stay tuned for that. I think there might be some opportunities for that coming down the, down the path. You know, we, we touched on briefly a slowdown with COVID. Um, but one of the things that I hear from institutions a lot is that they're flush with liquidity. Um, either loan demand is dried up or they're, they're you know, they, they just they need to put this money to work. Margins are being compressed. Costs are going up, um, all of that. And so do you anticipate, you know, going forward that we're going to see increased volume of M&A deals or mergers or, or organizations just going away? Well, it's a great point. I'll call it a war chest. Remember, in credit union land, there's no cash being transacted, but there's still capital. So a fair valuation of a merging entity is the norm. Um, what we're seeing is some, some capital ratios have increased, and in some cases, which enables us to maybe delve deeper into an organization that may have 7% capital, 8% capital, and have a little bit of a, a leeway. So I think that you're going to see is it's kind of a, a unique way of looking at it because there's no cash being transacted, but, but it's sort of a war chest for credit unions to maybe drop a little bit more into the risk side of things where the capital is not perfectly stellar um, for, for looking at other opportunities of other credit unions. So I, I, I still see that there's going to be more opportunity across the board. Like I said, clients are talking to us constantly about this. And they're, they're opening their risk tolerance in terms of capital. Do you see, you know, we had the, the economic crisis now that's, I don't know, 10, 12 years behind us. 
Um, but the institutions that that survived and maybe weren't as healthy as, as they once were, do you? But they survived. Do you see them going away this round with this new kind of economic slowdown, unemployment up, um, the current environment that we're in? Because it's clearly different than it was five years ago. Yeah, and unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, this isn't something that one organization did something bad or another did bad. It's us, we're all in this together. So some of those that have built the capital base, maybe um, had a really strong lending portfolio, have a little bit more loan to share ratio or a little bit more liquidity, I should say. So maybe some of the smaller ones that did not have the the technology platforms to serve their membership during COVID. It maybe didn't even have a drive-through for the members to go through a branch. Um, and just had kind of the old school ways of just going into a branch and weren't able to serve their members. I think that's going to be where the downfall is, where organizations are going to need to take a look at a collaboration with another organization that has capital to help with the technology side of things. It just really has been such a focus on technology, technology, technology. I always joke about that members, especially the millennials and the Gen Zs, their field of membership, it's they live, work, and worship on their phones. Well, this is just that catalyst to force us to go down that direction more, and it's costly. Scale means everything, and those organizations that have the scale right now, I think, are the ones that are going to get through this less um, impaired. So technology being a driver, scale clearly being a driver, you hear that a lot. I got to believe in this environment, compliance costs are also, oh, yeah. you know, oh, pretty yeah. significant, especially for institutions that aren't as profitable as others. What are, are there any other drivers um, for institutions to, to look at M&A or mergers or, or heading down this path? Yeah, I, I always look at this. Bigger does not necessarily mean better. However, quantitatively, we see this over and over again. You know, it used to be the race to 100 billion, race to 500. We hear over and over again, it's race to a billion. However, our clients that are over a billion, they say, we just need to continue growing. It's a consolidated industry. We keep seeing the numbers, you know, four or 5% per year uh, uh, collapsing or, or, or shrinkage of the, uh, the industry. With, we have less credit unions able to serve more members. So it makes you think, okay, we're able, we have less credit unions able to serve more members. What are we doing here? Well, scale, 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 scale. We're able to provide as we grow normally better pricing in terms of better loan rates and on share rate side. So our margins might um, start to collapse a bit as being a large organization, but it's because we have the efficiency as a large organization. In tandem, we're able to provide our employees more compensation, more career pathing, as I say, with, uh, with our, our, our transactions. Often that is one of the key drivers, is retaining obtaining talent, meaning employees. Uh, so technology, employees, uh, retaining and obtaining talent. Uh, I'd also say that right now, still looking at call reports from Q1 and, and Q2 will be out soon, is that it's a proactive way for organizations that have been doing well to at least stay sustainable, relevant, and keep some of their history behind it as opposed to a reactionary way. And so I'm finding more and more the creditors are re reaching out to saying, hey, you know what? We want to go into this with some strength into an organization or into a transaction. So 
those are the things that I'm seeing as being a uh, kind of the catalyst uh, for depositories to look down at this at this uh, this opportunity. So let's talk a little bit about, okay, I, I have those drivers, I have a need for scale, or I've got excess capital and I, I want to scale up. Whether I'm looking to acquire or be acquired, what are the top you know three to five things that, that banks or credit unions looking at M&A should be thinking about? So when, when you're looking, though, thinking about mergers is what I find is you do your normal strategic planning. You, I call it Q3, Q4 is the season of strategic planning. And it's organic strategic planning. Well, how can I leverage a merger to maybe get there faster to uh, achieve my strategic goals, my strategic vision? Is it that we're going to open up a new branch in an area because uh, our, our members are starting to grow into that general area? Well, have I exhausted credit unions that might have a branch in that area? It's nice that there are we already have a brand. We have people that know the industry or know the uh, the geography there. So maybe that's a way you can go into the, to capitalize on your strategic plan. I'll give you a story. I worked with the two credit unions. One was a about 700 million in assets, actually 600 million in assets, and they wanted to be a billion in assets in five years with 9% capital. Well, we started looking at mergers as an opportunity for growth, and they did a merger with an organization that was 350 in assets. Well, at the end, when they merged together and natural growth after they merged, they became a billion in assets in one year with 13% capital. That's powerful. And think this, the combined membership, 40% of the combined membership at that point had a branch closer to them. Talk about a value proposition. So they, so they, the one organization exceeded their goal, their five-year goals in one year. Wow. Yes. It's a lot of work, but it makes a lot of sense. So other things to consider about, especially in the credit union mergers is, is accretive. Um, yes, that's kind of a weird way to think of a credit union merger because there's no shares, but how is it accretive to our stakeholders? So always think in terms of member value. What are members looking for? Better distribution channels, convenience. So we have both physical and technological. Scale is one of them. They're also looking for pricing, better pricing, more products and services, uh, familiarity. So one of the key things I always think, hear about is, that, as I mentioned earlier, is that members want to make sure that the employees are taken care of in a merger. Those are the things that members are looking for. And last but not least, which is definitely not least, is remaining relevant in your communities and having uh, the board retained board seats in a combined organization that represents the combined membership. So we, we've talked a little bit about what drives the need for depositories to go down this path, the top you know, three to five things that they should be looking at. So now the natural question that I have in my mind is, when is the best time to do a transaction? Well, let's take that back a little bit. When should I start to explore a transaction? And I'd say you should always be exploring a transaction as part of your normal strategy. So as you as a, a leader of an organization, yeah, we're always looking at organic strategies, but strategy 101 is looking at opportunities for growth with others. So especially in the credit union space, it takes time. There's no cash being transacted between two organizations. It's all relationship built. So 
to put your hat in the ring, you really need to start now and just start to uncover what are we willing to do? What are, what are we good at? What could we do better at? How can we help another organization? How can they help us? Start to come go down the path with your board of directors and your executive team on what are our deal points? What are our negotiating points? How can we throw our hat in the ring and how can we start to explore building a relationship with another organization? I just recently heard that in the next, uh, I believe it was four years, 25% of executives are going to, um, there's going to be turnover. So wow. there's, um, there's opportunity for new leadership to come in, but also maybe there's some, some tired folks out there that say, hey, let's just combine two organizations together. Well, that takes some time to build that, that, that uh, relationship up. So I'd say start now, go through a strategic planning, how we would want to reach out to another organization. Um, and the, the key thing here is if you're going to do this, you have to have a written document. So having a approved search profile negotiating point early in the process so that as you as a leader, maybe the CEO, you know what your range of negotiating points are because as a leader, you should always be talking to others and just keeping your ears out for opportunities. So now, David, you know, I'm a, a CEO of an institution. I decide I want to go down this path. What are the key risk areas in an M&A transaction? First and foremost, and every time we have a successful merger, the two organizations come back to me and they say, it's a good thing we got rid of our egos. It's ego. That is by far in the credit union space is the biggest risk. Leave the egos at the door. Look at this in terms of the best thing for the members. First and foremost, second, the employees. Last is the community slash the board of directors. Once you can get rid of that ego, things will, will propel much better. And you're actually looking, as a board of directors, you're looking at the best thing for the combined organization. Uh, let me give you a story. I had a credit union that was about double the size of another. Uh, they were doing a merger. The bigger organization, the board of directors thought, okay, you know, we're the bigger organization. You should merge into us, all these different things. Well, it was interesting. The bigger organization had a different business model. They were doing fantastic, but they had more of a marketing focus. So their operating expenses were much higher. Uh, so just in the weird way of doing valuation in credit union land, it made their value less. So it actually made more sense for the bigger organization to merge into the smaller one. You know, granted, they were both state chartered, so there was no issue with a Fed versus state. But there was a bit of an ego kind of deflation for the large organization. Oh, we failed. We've not done as well as we should have. No, get that out of your mind. It was purely a quantitative decision. So they realized that, okay, we got to leave the egos at the door. The bigger organization merged in the smaller one. The bigger organization actually retained the name. But you know what? Who, who knew that the bigger one merged in the smaller one? No one. It was the board of directors because, yeah, the members of the big organization, they voted, but we're merging with XYZ organization. So it's the ego, 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 ego. A couple other things, as I mentioned earlier, is you have to have a written 
document of what we approve going forward in terms of the negotiation so that you don't waste your time, effort, and money. Ask the hard questions early. And that's, I think, where we provide a huge amount of values because we do ask those hard questions. We don't want to waste your time, effort, money. And let me give you a story. I was doing post-merger integration. This was many, many, many years ago. Uh, we were not helping out in terms of the structure or anything. We didn't bring the two together. We just ultimately came in to help do the post-merger integration. So we're building up these teams, the uh, plastics teams, finance team operations, you name it. Two days into it, you know, the, 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 they were working this early. The two CEOs, it hadn't merged yet. They were, uh, I was getting mixed signals between the two CEOs. And so I said, hey, can I look at your merger agreement? So I got to the merger agreement, went exactly, or went right to the CEO um, clause, and it didn't say who the continued CEO was. So I asked the two current ones. I said, who is the continuing CEO? Who's the president? Who's the EVP? How is this going to work? They both raised a hand in terms of who was going to be the continuing CEO. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. How do you think that went? So that is not, not well. Yeah, that is not what <laughs> we worked on. We would have asked the hard question earlier. But guess what happened? It fell apart. They wasted nine months of time, effort, and energy by kicking the can down the road thinking it was going to solve itself. So don't go down that path. Ask the hard questions early. It may not feel comfortable, but you're going to save a lot of time, effort, money. So I make the decision. I understand what the kind of the risk areas are. You know, I, I, I know the things I should be thinking about. I, I decide to move forward. I've got a partner lined up. What, what are the resources that are needed to to execute or complete a transaction? Yeah, I'm going to give you kind of a, a holistic list of ones that I would suggest. You don't have to have all of them, but there's reasons why I'm going to give you this list is that I, obviously a trusted advisor, an M&A advisor that knows the process that has both the strategic side of things and the quantitative side of things that can help you navigate through the merger process. Um, and ultimately, it lets you focus on your day-to-day -day activities. You've got a business to run. So let a, a trusted advisor help you out. The, the other is a very good, astute attorney, someone that has deal experience. That's key deal experience someone that can help you out in terms of not only writing the contracts like the merger agreement employment contracts but someone that can help with the governance items sometimes you know boards are going to be you know working on the bylaws the combined bylaws uh how do we want to work through that someone that an attorney that actually will roll up their sleeves and help in terms of that perspective a communications professional I've started using a communications professional in the last few years, and I think that's one of the best things that uh, the money can buy outside of uh, an attorney and an advisor. This is what's going to help the executive team and the board sleep at night. Someone that has a process that's going to leverage the two internal organizations' marketing communications teams, but has already planned ahead what are the questions going to be asked for? How is the PR going to happen? How do we go through this entire process? I'll tell you, I, I can't say enough about that. Next would be someone that's in um, maybe the member vote. So remember, the merging entities, members vote. Uh, an organization that can tabulate both uh, mail and electronic means, as well as at a special meeting. So the members of the merging entities uh, vote for the transaction. So an organization that can help tabulate that. I always recommend a third party perception. I always say perception is 90% of reality. If you have a third party that's going to tabulate that, 
the, the better because it just doesn't have a perception that something's unique happening in the background. Uh, a, a good, strong accounting firm, and usually that's going to be uh, your organization's accounting firm, and it's going to help with due diligence. The ones that are actually going to roll up their sleeves, look at things like a, an unfunded pension liability or something like that that can help out in terms of the due diligence aspects. And last but not least is sometimes it's going to go down to a point where it's the talent uh, advisor who maybe does an interview helping with the org chart, how does a... How does a, a billion-dollar organization look like compared to a $500 million organization? And how do we do an interview so that the board can maybe make a decision on who should lead our combined organization? That's not always, not always needed, but it's something to consider. One of the things you touched on a little earlier that I'd maybe like to have you expand upon is what is the board's role? in a transaction? That's a great, great, great question. It's really at the end of the day, stewards of the members. They got to constantly think that. Remember I talked about ego? Ego, we have boards of directors that put the light, blood, sweat, and energy into an organization, and I thank them to the bottom of my heart. We have, I'd say, 99, 98% of board members are uh, do this out of the kindness of the heart, uh, but it's really just being a steward of the, uh, for the members. They need to make sure that they uh, give enough leeway to the executives to run the process, but constantly communicating back to the boards. And I always say the ideal time is at the board uh, meetings. So let me give you a little bit idea of the, the initial process. What we normally see is two CEOs getting together to have a dialogue. It's their livelihood. They got to make sure they feel comfortable with the person across the table. Start to vet the process. Could we work together? How's our cultures work together? Once we feel comfortable between the two CEOs, you bring the board of directors in. I'll call it that we, we're going to have a, uh, a merger team that represents the board. So it's usually one or two board of directors along with the CEO that starts to develop uh, rapport with the other side, start to build out a letter of intent, um, etc., and starts to de develop that letter of intent over time and, and, and gives back feedback to the rest of the board of directors. But really, it's governance, making sure that we're doing best for our members, making sure we're doing best for our employees and the communities that we serve. So that's really the role uh, from a purely a governance standpoint is the board's, uh, the board's role. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense to me. So, you know, what, one thing we haven't touched on, I'd, I'd love to have you expand on a little bit, are what are the key phases of a transaction? We like to break our uh, the phases down in three, five major points. It's preparation, uh, then what I would call initiation, structuring, and then transaction analysis. Then it's more regulatory, more definitive agreements, and then I'll call it closing and integration. I'll just highlight some of the things here. Preparation is, is ultimately what's going on in the market space. You know, we as a board of directors and executive team have to understand why is, is this continuing to happen? Something, some of the things that we talked about today. But it's, it's coming up with our search profile, having it a written document, and then coming up with those credit unions that we think make sense based on our collaborative deal structure, our, our, our search mandate. That's preparation. Coming up with our roadmap. We do a strategy plan every year. Why would we not do that for a merger? We should have that at least in place. Once we put that together, it's the initiation and structure. That's really, now we have our roadmap. What are we willing to negotiate? It's going out and starting to 
uh, have discussions with other organizations. And as we as at ALM First, as an advisor, that's when we contact the specific targets and start to ask them, would you be willing to explore an opportunity with another organization? We have not made any, made any decisions at this point. We've got to feel that we are covering ourselves, that, ne that we're just having a dialogue. If this gets out in the marketplace, people are getting nervous. We haven't come up with any decisions yet. So starting to go through that process, the structure, what could this look like, all those things I talked about. So coming up with what I'll call as the, the letter of intent. And then initial um, value proposition. We've got to understand how does this make sense for our, board, our members, our employees, our communities, and our board of directors. Once we come up with a letter of intent, and that note that this is a non-binding document, but it says that we're going to go spend time, effort, money to go to the next uh, phase, which is transaction analysis. This is more the quantitative area. This is where your CPAs come in, but also you're going to leverage internal expertise, your lending professionals that might go in and pull some loan files and see how the, 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 the loans are underwritten. Then doing a projection, financial projections of the combined entity. Ultimately, this is strategy. We're finding more and more, especially on sizable transactions, that the regulators are coming back and asking for a combined ALM to make sure the riskiness to the, the transaction. So that's something to be put into place. Once we feel comfortable, the value proposition from a quantitative perspective and then the uh, a value proposition from qualitative is put together because that's going to ultimately go to the regulators. We are then go to the next phase, which is definitive agreements on regulatory approval. At this point, this goes to the regulators. We are going to have a regulatory merger packet that says this is the reasons why we think this makes sense for our members, our employees, our communities, our board, etc. This is the structure. Um, and there's some other items in here, but this is all based on our findings. Once this goes through, the regulators approve this. We then go to a member vote. Remember the merging entities members vote. And we can then become legally one. That does not mean we're on the same core system at that point in time. The core system, what we're finding is depending on which one you're going to go on to, that could be Dying 12, 18, maybe even two years out into the future. So you got to have a plan of attack of how you're going to serve the combined members in the meantime until you're on one, um, one core system. And with that, throughout this entire process, there's got to be a communication planning and execution that goes hand in hand with this, as I talked to you about earlier with some of the key um, advisors is to help you with that communication plan of how do we get this out internally, externally, and so forth. Wow, that was, <laughs> there's clearly a lot to this process, David. You know, I, I know we're butting up against time, so, um, you know, maybe you can, any closing thoughts that you want to share? Well, thank you, first of all, Mike, for your time. Uh, I just find that this is a really exciting industry to be in. I think we as a credit union industry don't get the word out enough to the industry of how good we are to the our customers, our members, our stakeholders, our shareholders. It's great for the members. Employees love to work at uh, credit unions, helping out the communities at large. Uh, it is becoming much more competitive, and we've done that to ourselves in many cases that we've become more community-based. but. If you can find an opportunity with a like-minded credit union, coming together makes it a little, lot easier collaboratively than competing against each other for the same members and not having the economies of scale there. So 
the key takeaway is if you're going to go through this, at least come up with a written strategy plan so that you can put your hat in the ring intelligently. You know, this has been very enlightening, David. You know, I've heard you speak about this, you know, quite a bit in the past. And every time I hear you talk, I, your passion comes through. I learn something every time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, David, for taking time to talk through mergers with us. At the end of each episode, I like to take a moment to let you know about things that are coming up. Because M&A is such a big topic in the industry, we have a whole library full of resources for you, from articles to recorded webinars. Um, and David is continuously doing new webinars. So please visit almfirst.com to find out more. You can check in our resource center or you can email us at podcast at almfirst.com. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you for listening to In Your Best Interest, an ALM First podcast. The content in this podcast is provided for informational purposes and should not be relied upon as recommendations or financial planning advice. We encourage you to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals regarding all investment decisions. Current and future holdings are subject to risk. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Podcasts should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The views and opinions expressed by the ALM First financial advisor speakers are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and ALM First financial advisors disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice because investment decisions are based on numerous factors may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any ALM First Financial Advisors product. Neither ALM First Financial Advisors nor the speaker can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. ALM First Financial Advisors is an SEC-registered investment advisor with a fiduciary duty that requires it to act in the best interests of clients and to place the interests of clients before its own. However, Registration as an investment advisor does not imply any level of skill or training.